Realizing everything else does matter too, because it cannot be just about the food. It has to be about the total experience, both on and off the plate. My name is Ben McCormack. I'm the editor of Square Meal Restaurant Guide, and I also write about food and restaurants for the Telegraph Luxury section. And uh, I'm Charles Spence, uh, a psychologist at Oxford, also a gastrophysicist uh, here too. Talk a bit about the new book, Gastrophysics, the New Science of Eating. So if you were to give a user-friendly definition of gastrophysics (laughs) in one word, (laughs) uh, what would that be? Uh, So I want to position it as kind of a combination of gastronomy on the one side uh, and sort of food science, food psychology on the other, and that's the psychophysics uh, uh, part of it. Um, And by putting those two things together, it's kind of hard to know what, what name you need. Maybe that sounds a bit scientific and put some people off, um, but there was nothing else that quite did it. And I'm trying to separate ourselves from all those food science labs out there who do do science and food and taste and flavour and shelf life studies, but it's not really the kind of food that you want to eat. And what are the sort of main discoveries that you've come across? Uh, these things that we know already, but we're, we're sort of just not aware of and it needs putting into words, perhaps? Um, I guess as a psychologist, you're often sort of told, well, didn't we know that already? It's kind of the science of the bleeding obvious. Um, but in fact, I think sometimes when you, when you check the things that you kind of think maybe you know or you're not quite sure if it's true or not, it turns out you get answers that are different from um, uh, what you might imagine. So one of the examples from the book is about the, the effect of the weight of cutlery uh, in the hand and how if you uh, eat with heavier knife and fork, uh, food tastes better to you. You're willing to pay more for it. This is based on research that we've done um, in a Scottish restaurant uh, with diners eating their meal half with the canteen cutlery, half with a, the finest cutlery, and seeing that on the same day, those people in the same restaurant gave very different ratings. They wouldn't pay a pound or two more for exactly the same food, simply with more weight in their hand. That's kind of intuitive. Maybe when chefs will say, yeah, I guess I kind of knew that already. But actually having a financial value on the benefit that accrues to your food service offering as a function of the weight, that's something you can use and say, is it worth spending that much on a new set of knives and forks? Well, yes, if it's going to give us that much return in terms of enhancing the perceived quality of the, of the offering. So gastrophysics does have very real applications to the real world. It's not just something in a science lab. <laughs> uh, absolutely. For us, it's kind of um, spent 20 years working with the food industry um, and funded for a long time by Unilever, doing uh, fruit teas and brain-enhancing margarines and, uh, and things like that. But the challenge has always been that the company, food scientists and chefs, were not necessarily so good at transforming the insights that came out into something you'd want to eat. And that's where, um, from, from working with Heston since back in 2002 uh, now, uh, that was a real eye-opener in the way that the most creative of the chefs could take some scientific insight, things that they were interested in, uh, and turn it within no time at all into something that people were excited by, that they really enjoyed uh, tasting and was memorable. So it starts there in places like the Fat Duck Research Kitchen, um, and maybe not all of us get the chance to go to the, such restaurants. So you think, does it really matter to me? 
And I think it does because what starts there then will percolate down to uh, the mainstream sometime later. How are you seeing it percolate down to the mainstream for, for all those people who don't like froths and foams in their food and they just want their beans on toast. Um, what, what relevance does this have to them? I guess a section of people who, who say, um, science and food, no, I just want you know, the natural, the organic, the free range, the hand plucked uh, uh, from the field outside. Um, and we don't want any of this scientific approach. Um, it's not for us. But I think no matter who you are, no matter what you like to eat, wherever you go, there is always an atmosphere. So in the end, whatever you're thinking of serving, uh, I think knowing a bit about how the atmosphere affects you, how all this wood on the walls, that's doing something, I bet, to, the, to your taste perception. Um, so why not study it uh, and think about how to incorporate it into a, uh, a, a better offering? If you were to hazard a guess, could you say how this sort of environment would affect one's taste perception? So um, just wandering around a lot of the time when we're thinking about what experiments to do, you just... Um, uh, maybe it's going to a restaurant or the local pub and thinking, well, I wonder why they're doing that. Have they thought about it? Is it designed in? Is it appealing just to me? And if so, why? Uh, so I see a lot of coffee shops. It seems to be like a, a link between sort of coffee shops and uh, wood finish. And maybe it's the new Nordic approach. But I wonder whether there's some connection, uh, fundamental connection in terms of taste. And while we haven't done the experiment with coffee yet, we have just uh, finished a, a series of experiments with uh, whiskies, with wines, um, and this kind of goes back, in fact, to the 1930s, to F.T. Marinetti, one of my sort of uh, favourites, um, and his futurist cookbook, which is kind of the, the topic of the last chapter. Um, and every, pretty much everything you see in modernist cuisine these days, it was all tried back in the 1930s by the Italians. You might not like their politics, but they were very creative and innovative. And in the futurist cookbook, um, it sort of talks about uh, uh, syntactalismo, which is this kind of the impact of what you feel on what you taste. And it can be the weight of the cutlery. We've seen that already. But it can also be the textures. So if you went to one of Marinetti's uh, uh, dinner parties, you recommend you turned up with sort of pyjamas of different materials, felt, velvet, uh, I guess tin foil was a new material at the time. And you would eat without the aid of cutlery because they were questioning that. And you'd eat with your face buried in the plate while simultaneously feeling your neighbour's gym jams uh, to see what it did to the taste. And they kind of knew intuitively that it did something. Uh, no one ever followed up. Uh, but today we've been working with the whiskies, with the wines, and able to show that if we give people a bit of sandpaper to feel or a textured surface, that will bring out the textured notes in the drink uh, or of the tannins, give people a bit of soft velvet instead, and suddenly their ratings of one and the same drink in the glass are different. So now we can study it and then think about how to optimise it and whether it's the texture you feel or just the texture you see on the wall. I think that's setting expectations, probably not consciously, uh, about the kind of tasting experience that is to come. Do memories come into our uh, appreciation of flavour as well, or is it more focused on the other senses with gastrophysics? Um, so I guess I, I sort of come from a background in, in just in perception. What happens in the moment? Why do we ex- feel things the way uh, that we do? Um, and it's all about how the senses connect in that moment in your perception as you're tasting or, um, or eating. But uh, through writing the book, I've kind of come to realise that memory is much more important part of the total experience because... There is nothing that we enjoy in food or drink that is not linked uh, or enjoyable because of the memories that we have. We're only born, uh, you know, liking sweetness, maybe liking umami, it's in, the, in breast milk, everything else, bitterness, sourness, we do not like at birth, flavours we have no intrinsic response to, unless our mothers happen to eat them during pregnancy. So everything else, all the things we love now, it's all because of learning, learning what's paired with what and what is paired with sugar, say, or caffeine or, or alcohol. So it's, it's, it's really key there. And it's also key, I think, um, for the restaurateur, if you think about what dictates where you're going to go for a meal out, you base those judgments, decisions uh, on memory, the memory of the meal. 
Uh, and the simple way of thinking about the memory of the meal is, well, it's just like the real meal. It's just a bit weaker, devoid of the pungency and tang, William James would have said a, a century ago. Um, but in fact, it's not like that. Our memories play tricks on us, predictable tricks. We remember the first thing and the last thing. We remember the high points uh, and the low. Um, and the stuff in between kind of gets forgotten somehow. And so memory is not like a weaker version of the real thing. It's systematically biased and different. And if you understand those biases, you can engineer in better food experiences that stick in memory, that have stiction is kind of the, the term from the marketing and economics side. And I think this is important wherever you look in the food chain from uh, work with uh, Chef uh, Joseph Youssef at Kitchen Theory. He has a database of people who go to his restaurant uh, in High Barnet um, and he would send out questionnaires two or three weeks after they'd come to one of his meals. And they'd say, what do you remember? And two or three weeks later, you can remember, I had a dish in the middle and it was really enjoyable. And then he says, okay, what was in that dish? What do you remember of the taste, the flavours, the combination? Because that's what he cares about as the chef. And you remember something, it's just when he checks it against what he knows went into the dish, it's completely different ingredients. And that's, um, uh, I think, a real problem for him. It's disappointing. But what he finds does stick in memory for him is, is kind of the theatrics. When Lulu, his wife, comes out and sprays anatomized aroma over the food, that sticks in people's memories. And if you know the theatre sticks, then that's something you want to build in. Just to explain Kitchen Theory a little more, this is a, a restaurant in North London that you've played a part in launching uh, with a, a chef who used yep. to work at Ellen Ross at the Connell. Uh, he's uh, one of the few chefs who sort of have, cause if you're working 20 hours a day in the kitchen, you have no time for research, for gastrophysics, for the science, for the writing. Um, so there are very few chefs who I think can have the balance of working in the kitchen, creating beautiful flavour combinations, um, but at the same time have days off to do the research uh, and challenge oneself to do new things. And he's got that sort of balance just right, I think. And, and very kindly, we can do um, experiment. I didn't do any of the cooking, uh, but I can say, here's the latest findings from the gastrophysics. Um, how, how might they apply? Uh, could you design a dish um, that will bring, illustrate the point or that will actually provide evidence? Ultimately, we'd like to do the experiments in the restaurant with real diners paying real money for real food, not in a science lab where I pay you a few pounds and, uh, and I've got my white coat on and it's very scientific and not like real food. But actually doing the experiments in the restaurant can be hard if you're going out for a fancy meal, you don't want to fill out questionnaires and do the other stuff. So how, how can you kind of do the experiments in the wild, in the real restaurants? Um, and, with, and with Joseph there, we've been able to make some dishes where uh, a recent one was kind of the four tastes that comes to the table uh, as four spherified balls of taste, sweet, sour, bitter, and salty. One's green, one's brownie black, one's white, uh, and one sort of pinkish red. And uh, uh, Lulu says to the diners, this is the four tastes. The chef recommends that you start with a bitter, then have a, the sour spoon, then salty, and end on a sweet note. And she walks off, but you can see everyone in the table's got their spoons in a different order. So you're going, well, you didn't tell me which, which, which spoon was which. And that's the experiment. That's the dish. You arrange your spoons in terms of colour. Which colour do you think is sweet, salty, bitter, and sour? And then Lulu and the team can look from behind and see how you order your spoons. And that becomes the data that goes into... Uh, uh, the research um, and I think it's kind of an exciting way to, to, to do the experiments it's noisy and you're chatting to your friends and you've got your mobile devices and maybe there's you know uh, people are talking to each other at the, at the table so it's not like a real experiment but if you can take that in the wild together with an online or a lab experiment and say it works in both places people think that pinkish red is sweet that greenish yellow is sour that browny black is bitter and white's going to be salty then you can say I think this is something we can work with in order of trying to set expectations in a certain way uh, in, in a dish is there a danger, do you think, that this is becoming too far removed from why lots of people want to go to restaurants, which is to have a nice meal and a nice time with their friends? And all of this is sort of in, intruding on that, perhaps. Um, 
there must be a danger, and there are certainly those out there who seem to take things too far. Um, so, you know, all this bring back the round white plate. I don't want slates, I don't want bricks, I don't want flower pots, flat caps, or trowels. I just want the plate and the, and the food. Uh, yeah, people do go too far, but I think in that there is still a truth that plateware matters more than we ever realise. You can't taste the plate, but the plateware on which a food comes does change the taste of what you're eating. Um, we did work on a pinkish uh, red, uh, looks like an ice cream, uh, sort of strawberry uh, uh, mousse uh, type dish, and we had people eating that strawberry mousse off a white plate or off a black plate. And you've got to say, how sweet is the ice cream? One to ten. How flavourful? How intense the aroma? How much do you like that ice cream? And it turns out those people there said that the ice, the, the strawberry mousse tasted 7% sweeter, 13% more flavourful, and 9% more liked when they eat it off a white plate than off a black plate. Exactly the same batch of, of strawberry mousse. Uh, so that's one example. That was from 2012. We published that. I think the theatrical bit, again, can go too far. But once you realise that it's the memory of the meal that you're trying to engineer, uh, and if I know the theatricals helps make sticky memories, that's going to increase. And I think we'll look back maybe in five or ten years from now and think, wasn't it bizarre that we used to go out on a Friday night with the families to eat and we have like a, a pre-theatre meal and then we go to the theatre? Why do we insist on keeping our pleasures separate? We'll see much more kind of a, a merging of, of total experience that, where food is a part, but it's really about the experience and that will become more and more key. Your book's subtitled The New Signs of Eating. Um, what's the, the, the next new stage of, of gastrophysics, if you like? Well, what's the future of gastrophysics? Um, so I sort of, sort of think that, that we've had kind of three decades of uh, science in the kitchen, science of spumes and foams and rotobats and anti-griddles um, uh, and so on. And that's taken us a long way. Um, and now we're going to see maybe some de- decades of science in the front of house because no one's been thinking about the diner. Why do they perceive things the way they do? And does it have any um, potential to help with, say, problems involving sustainability or, or food shortages? Can gastrophysics play a part in that? Uh, I think so. Um, as I say, it starts in the high end, because that's the, the most rapid innovation space, and that's where the chefs and the creators of the kitchen and the bar can really take the science and make it delicious. Um, but it does percolate down to the mainstream, to sustainability, to the home dining. In the case of sustainability, I did have a chapter in here on hospital food, that's something I'm, I'm sort of passionate about at the moment. But the publisher said, no, take it out, it's depressing. No one wants to read about that. We want a happy, upbeat book. So it's out as a paper instead. But I think many of the same principles that are applied here to three Michelin-star restaurants, two Michelin-star restaurants, can be applied in hospital situations in order to make food taste better. Who's thinking about the colour of the plates in hospitals? Uh, who's thinking about the colour of the trays? Why do we have a red tray diet? It makes no sense. Red is an aversion colour uh, around food, and you eat less. And here we have lots of these patients who are um, not eating enough, to uh, recover quickly enough, so they need to eat more, and simply by changing the colour of the plate from, say, white to blue or high contrast colour, you can get patients in hospitals, and this has been done in the UK, to eat 30% more, because they can actually see the food now. No one was thinking this way before, but it's right there, it can be applied. And in, um, also in entomophagy, eating insects is, is a big one for us, and we've been doing, again, experiments, thinking about how to make insects more delicious, because no one's going to eat them if you tell them that they should. No one's going to eat them if you tell them it's good for the planet. You've got to appeal to the mind through the senses, I think. We're working with Joseph. He had a wonderful Mexican menu, nine courses, and six of those courses were insects-based, just on the side of the plate, and a lot of work went into thinking about how to present them. Start the first few courses without, and then bring it in as a dusting on the back of the plate, stenciling the plate, uh, and, that, and then have some sort of more recognisable insect parts, and then have a whole insect by course number five, and it was amazing to see people coming out of that experience 
who'd gone in, never had insects before, not sure if they liked them, maybe ticking the box saying, I don't want to eat insects, coming out nine courses later and saying, wow, that was fabulous, it was brilliant. I didn't realise I was eating them. They were delicious. Where do I get them uh, and how can we have more? And I think it is that through that collaboration, understanding the science of what it is that we dislike in insects, combined with the culinary creativity to make taste combinations that are great, that will really help, um, hopefully, to, to change behaviour there as well. Does anybody have any questions for Charles? A lot of these things that you're measuring, um, I get the feeling that some of those might be more sort of socially constructed uh, rather than being um, objective in a way. So uh, maybe it sort of sounds simplistic. But I I wonder to what extent you're making scientific something that in the end is about perception and it's very relative depending on who you're testing this with. Uh, That's a fair point. So in the past, we go back five or ten years, we do all our experiments in the lab in Oxford on psychology undergraduates. We call them weirdos, Western-educated, industrialised, rich and democratic boys and girls. And from that, we would infer the state of the world and what should be done. Uh, Of course, that's been kind of criticised now. Um, And 95% of all psychology research was done just on those weirdos, the undergraduates who had to take part for their to get their degree. But with the opening up of the internet, uh, more and more now we can do online research and then test people from different parts of the world uh, and we do, when we get the chance, go out. Uh, we've been to the Himba tribe in northern Namibia to see, do they get the same things as the rest of us or not? So we find that, um, you know, uh, if we ask people, uh, if you have two shapes, Booba and Kiki, one sort of round like a cloud and the other one's very angular like a star, and I say, which of those two shapes is Booba or Kiki? Then you say, the round one, it's going to be Booba. It's a meaningless name, but it just sort of feels like it goes together. This is sound symbolism. Take it to the world of flavour, uh, this is what we did with, with Heston back in 2007 at uh, Art and Science Conference in Oxford. We gave people foods and said, is it more booba or kiki? Uh, and it turns out most people will say that sparkling carbonated drinks, they're kiki and they're angular, uh, whereas still drinks are rounded. Sweet things, what shape is that? Booba, rounded, uh, bitter is angular, sour is angular and asymmetric. We're tapping these things in the lab on the internet and then going out um, and so in the Science Museum in London, we were very lucky to have 50,000 people at last count who came through from all continents in the world taking part of some of, in some of these experiments. And sometimes we find that the associations are universal, uh, but at other times there is a, a, a cultural uh, difference there. So if you take plating, for example, we're doing studies in seven countries simultaneously, more or less, where we say, what is the perfect plate on which to serve a dish? Um, and if you go to China, we find what's very popular is kind of metal bowls that look like sort of dogs drinking bowl, but Chinese people don't mind that. Whereas if I show exactly the same dish to a British consumer and say, I'm going to serve it to you in a dog bowl, no way. So that's a cultural difference. But I think more often than not, we're finding there are universals here. A case in point, our work, which may seem more esoteric, this sort of sonic seasoning, what that certain sounds, high-pitched piano, tinkling sounds, sound sweet to Western ears. We work with designers to create compositions that will bring out and a match to every taste, texture and food. And they say, well, in India, they've got a very different palette, a very different way of combining ingredients, a very different musical repertoire. Would they be able to decode a sweet sound as well as an American or, or a British Protestant? And the answer is virtually yes. That turns out to be a kind of universal sweet sounds are shared wherever we've been. Um, so it can go either way, but I think more often than we might expect it is universal or at least universal to the kinds of people who might come to one's restaurant and where there's cultural diversity um that's important um and maybe as you know when you go to the fat duck now they'll be googling you finding out all sorts of stuff about you when were you born so they get this sort of breakfast cereals of the right decade for you uh what do you like 
and some of that personalisation is integrated into the meal. Can backfire at the fact that because her friend went along and she was given a postcard of her honeymoon and uh, she just divorced her husband. So um, <laughs> that was a, a, a rather unwelcome flavour memory that she was given. Uh, maybe a, yeah, I suppose the way... I mean, North American diners seem to be much more uh, used to the concept of personalisation in high-end restaurants, but it is with the big data, the, the, the venture capital firms, coming in and analysing every aspect of your Pizza Hut experience. They, too, are saying, well, if it works at the high-end... How can we bring a note of personalization into the mainstream? It can seem creepy or it can sort of backfire. But kind of, I guess the art of it is how to get that information and then incorporate it in a way that you don't even realize it's being done. But the experience just flows naturally in the way that the fact that they used to do the brilliant thing of, you know, serving the first few courses uh, finger food. And by doing that, they can see which hand you use to, to take the food. Are you lefty or a righty? And then subsequent courses can be plated, served, for your left-handed status, all right. They never mention it, and you may never notice, but it doesn't mean it's not doing the work in terms of subtly in, in, in improving your experience. Super. I think that's, that's probably <laughs> it. Um, thank you, everybody, for coming, and uh, thanks very much to Charles for sparing his time. This programme was brought to you by Soho House and Radio Wolfgang. It was presented by me, Ben McCormack, and features psychologist Charles Spence. 